to remain standing just for a bit longer, I would invite you to do so. You don't have to, but if you want to, out of honor for the reading and hearing of God's Word, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. Thank you guys for helping us to sing to the Lord this morning. We're grateful for the work that you do to lead us. James chapter 4, this morning I want us to look at verses 6 through 10, but let's go ahead and start reading at verse 4. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. Your word is good and beautiful. It's living. It's active. So our prayer is that as we consider these words that we've just read, your words that we've just read, may your spirit be at work in our midst, in our hearts. May you give us understanding. May you change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, last week we, we touched on the center of this segment of James. The heart of this section, which began in chapter 3, verse 1, and will wind up in verse 12 of chapter 4. The center was the hard word that James spoke to us when he said, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He centers us there because in the context, he's been talking about how we weaponize our words and go to war with each other. What would cause us to use our words to curse rather than bless? 
What would you cause us to use our words to tear down and to quarrel and to, and to fight rather than to build up and to encourage? What would cause us to, 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 to war with each other? Well, what James is explaining to us is that when your heart and my heart goes sideways, when, when you and I are unfaithful in our hearts in regard to God, then that shapes and colors how we do relationships around us. And so the center of our horizontal difficulties is a vertical realignment. And that's what James begins to explain to us in verses 6 through 10. Now, we touched on verse 6 a little bit last week, uh, but we, we, we're going to start there. We ended up there last week. We're going to start there this morning. And um, two things I want us to say from verses 6 through 10. First of all, primarily in verse 6, I want us to consider the source of faithfulness. In light of these charges of spiritual unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery, James is providing us a pathway of faithfulness. But first of all, he identifies the source of you and I heading in a trajectory of faithfulness. And then in verses 7 through 10, he provides uh, what, I would, what I'm going to call strategies, some strategies of, uh, for faithfulness. Let me just touch on verses 7 through 10 for a second. That's not where I'm going to start, and yet on the other hand, that's where I'm going to start. But and, and, and when you look at verses 7 through 10, it's just, it's just quick, rapid-fire imperatives, commands, declaring what the Lord Jesus wants us to concern ourselves with. These are, these are overlapping and they're interrelated. And, and yet all of these commands serve as correctives, things that we are to uh, involve ourselves with, things that we are to do that would be correctives to the charge that James has just leveled against us. These commands are strategies for faithfulness, strategies to walk away from unfaithfulness. But first, we'll come back to those. And first, we must consider or and or reconsider the source of faithfulness. Verse 6, but he gives or grace. How is our unfaithfulness countered? How is our unfaithfulness cured? What is the ultimate antidote to our unfaithfulness? God's grace. The fact that God would move toward us and not away from us 
in the face of our unfaithfulness, tells us the very first thing that is crucial to know about the operations of grace. Grace initiates undeservedly. When the Lord finds us, when the Lord found any of us, in what state did he find us in? He found us in a state of abject unfaithfulness. It is grace that initiates a search and rescue mission. It is grace that comes to the aid of undeserving people. It is grace that is the ultimate grounds or source of conquering unfaithfulness. There is a very distinct, what I would say, undeservedness to grace. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the Lord's movement toward us when we are in the process of sneaking around and moving away from the Lord. As early as the garden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and when God started moving about in the garden, they ran and hid. And what accounts for the fact that God didn't just say, fine, go hide, I'm done. What accounts for that is the operations of grace that searched out and located a hiding Adam and Eve. That is the first thing we must grasp about grace. This grace is how you and I, any of us, get started in our relationship with God. Listen to this sweet verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. After he has delineated in verses 1 through 3 that we are dead in our sins, that we are following the prince of this world, that we are by nature children of wrath, he says, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. And then the capstone, he says, by grace you have been saved. His mercy, his love, his grace, just a cluster of commitments and a cluster of attitudes in the heart of God, his mercy, his love, his grace that congealed in the heart of God and that caused him to pursue us in our state of unfaithfulness. When we had no prospects in life but death and judgment, being rich in mercy 
because of his great love in which he loved us. By grace, you have been saved. But that's the start. Is that all the grace you're going to get? But he gives more grace, is what we've read. The grace that gets us started, he says, now look, Joe, I'm going to prime the pump here, and, uh, and then uh, after I get you started uh, on the Christian life and journey, after I bring you from judgment to, to blessing, after I bring you from death to life, after I bring you from bondage to sin to now an instrument of righteousness, uh, now, Joe, you better start lifting a finger and, and finish it off. So I'll see you when you get home. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. The God who rescues sinners is a God who dispenses more grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found blind, but now I see. That gets us started. Is that all the grace that we're going to get? But he gives more grace. And I think it's at this point that... um, we often go amiss in our understandings of the operations of grace. We, we don't take heed to this notion of, but he gives more grace. It goes like this. You say, well, if... If I'm saved by grace and not by works, if, if I'm rescued by Jesus and not by myself, uh, if I'm saved by grace while I was a wretch before I got my act together, before I even was inclined to get my act together, before I even uh, gave thought to getting my act together, if, if I was saved by grace while I was a wretch, uh, then why do I need to concern myself with with, with the directives that he gives to me in verses 7 through 10. Doing those things won't save me. I'm already saved. This is where we misfire in our understanding of grace. We could have a concept of grace so that when we read verses 7 through 10, and it gives us these half a dozen or so imperatives or commands, uh, we, we would just kind of wink and nod with each other and say, well, but, we know, but we know he don't mean that. <laughs> I mean, after all, we're saved by grace, not by works. Does grace make verses 7 through 10 unnecessary? I would suggest to you that being saved by grace makes verses 7 through 10 doable. 
now for the first time in our lives. When we read commands from God, that now that we are inundated, drenched by grace, when we read the commands of God, we read those commands, those, oh, let me back up. We're so grateful to have God's word, but God's word comes to us in sentences. And there's different kinds of sentences. There's, there are imperatives, and we're going to touch on those in a second in verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10 is loaded with imperatives. Do you know what an imperative sentence is? Which, by the way, that's an interrogative sentence. But, but, but do you know what an imperative sentence is? An imperative sentence is a sentence that tells you what to do. It's a command. Do this. But those imperative sentences are built upon the engine of uh, these beautiful indicative sentences. Imperative sentences tell you what to do. Indicative sentences tell you what is. They describe the, the state of reality. The command to resist the devil, the command to draw near to God, the, the command to um, cleanse our hands and purify our hearts, the, the command to, to mourn and to weep is all built upon the indicative of, but he gives more grace. There's narrow one of these commands that you and I can do natively on our own. <laughs> But if we belong to Jesus, we are no longer on our own. We are now joined to Christ. And, and, and God's grace keeps flooding into our heart and soul. He doesn't ever uh, short us with his grace. He gives more grace. This is crucial to grasp. Grace doesn't render the orders in verses 7 through 10 irrelevant. Grace makes those orders doable. They are necessary to attend to because now we have the source of life. We have the power of God's grace to practice those. Or let me frame it this way. How else is God's grace to find us? God's grace is to find us in the state that we're in when it finds us. And grace accepts us in the state that it finds us in. It accepts us in that state because of Christ. But the grace that finds us in the state that we're in and accepts us in that state is a grace that keeps coming and that it keeps applying itself to our hearts and souls. So therefore, it's a grace that accepts us where it finds us but refuses to leave us in the state that it originally finds us in. But he gives more grace. Listen to how grace is, is explained in a couple of related passages. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And it says there, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation 
for all people. And then he continues. Training us. Now, wait a minute. What trains us? The grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us, those whom God's grace becomes alive in our hearts and souls. It trains us. Trains us to do what? Trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But what else does it do? Uh, to re, and, and, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Not just in the age to come. So what trains us? Grace trains us. Grace saves us, and those whom grace saves, grace begins training. He gives more grace. And what does it train us to do? It trains us to renounce, to put away, to strip off the remaining vestiges of our flesh, and it trains us in conjunction with that to cultivate, to put on, and to practice the virtues of Christ himself. Grace finds us in a mess. Grace finds us in an ungodly state overrun by worldly passions without a lick of self-control, uprightness, or godliness, and yet grace does not leave us in that state. Or the way the Apostle Paul explains more grace in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not without effect. He explains that. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. The grace that saved Paul, who was a murderous persecutor of the church, arrested him on the road to Damascus. It's the grace that energized Paul to live in a whole new trajectory of life. It wasn't a grace that anesthetized Paul to sit back and relax, but it was a grace that energized Paul to pursue godliness, the things of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he was clear that even though it energized him to work hard at pursuing those things, the glory belongs to the source of that, the grace of God. You see, Apostle Paul is telling us, but he gives more grace. Now quickly, let me touch on having considered the source of grace, uh, the source of faithfulness. Now let's look at some strategies for faithfulness. And that's where we come back to what I alluded to earlier Verses 7 through 10. By the way, just as a side note, it's what is interesting. This must have been a, uh, an apostolic kind of formula of sorts because in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, you, you have the same um, directives given here that, that James gives in verses 7 through 10. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. So, so it must have been like a 
secret insider handshake of the apostles or something like that. But, but, here, but here in verse seven of James, he gives a series of commands. And, and he doesn't really elaborate on any of these things. Uh, it just, just one thing after another. And in fact, my, my real struggle is, and in fact, I'm still kind of... Um, in limbo is like, so do I come back and like spend more time in each one of these things or do we just do like a quick drive-by and hit them all at once? Well, I don't know. I'll figure that out between now and next Sunday. But, but first of all, look at verse seven. Now he's just said in verse six, but God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And, and what does he say in verse seven? Submit yourselves to God. Now if your translation says humble yourself before God, that's good because really the word submit there and, and, and the word humble really are uh, related terms. And, and so the imagery there of, of even if you go with the, ner- the word submission, it's, it's, it's really helpful helping us to understand what humility looks like. And, and humility reflects an attitude of submission. But yet, but yet look at verse, at verse 7, submit yourselves to God. And then, and then what does he end up with at the very end of verse 10? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So he's just said in verse 6, but he gives more grace. But God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then, he, and then, it, and then it's like verse 7 and verse 10 kind of serve as a bookend to the series of commands. So, so since God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, what's the first thing we must concern ourselves with? Being humble before God. Uh, being submissive before God. But we'll come back to those 7 and 10 in a second because they kind of serve as the bookend for this passage Beyond that, then there are the secondary strategies uh, as to how to deal with particular uh, uh, episodes in our lives that tempt us and threaten us to move toward unfaithfulness. See, these from a human perspective are the antidotes to unfaithfulness. The grace of God is the ultimate source of the antidote for unfaithfulness. But here are strategies If you're inclined to not want to be unfaithful, then here are some things that we must concern ourselves with, relying upon the power of God's grace. Resist the devil. See, the devil is entailed in our notions of unfaithfulness. There would, there's nothing that would put a smile on his face quite like you and I listening to him and being enticed by him to move away from the Lord. I don't know if he smiles or not, but, but I don't even want to entertain trying to put a smile on his face uh, for, for a moment. And, and, and yet I can get silly in the head and I can not think straight uh, and I can buy into the, the, in, the allurements that he puts in front of us that appeals to my inward desires that would move me away from faithfulness to the Lord. He just says, resist the devil. Now, boy, doesn't that sound simple? And it is simple, even if there is complexity in that, there is also something that is quite uncomplicated in that. Assuming what he has just assumed about the source of 
faithfulness, relying upon the grace of God in submission and in, in dependence upon the Lord. When the devil tempts us, you and I have everything we need. We don't have to do some sort of silly uh, rigmarole more or, or some sort of hoops. Uh, we don't have to figure out some sort of spiritual demonic uh, this or that. But you and I already have everything we need. We don't have to look for a second amount of whatever. We have the grace of God that we need that when the devil comes knocking, we don't have to answer the door. Why? Because the grace of God gives us new power, new strength to resist the devil. On our own, don't go there. Don't hang out with the devil on your own. Don't even hang out with him, period. But don't hang out with the devil on your own. He's smarter than we are. He's stronger than we are. He's more crafty than we are. He's more maniacal and untruthful than we are. Um, he, he, he will set us up and make us think that we are now best buds, BFFs. Uh, but he will throw us under the bus in a heartbeat. It, but, and so how can we conquer that? Well, in our own, we can. But we are contending that in Christ, we are not on our own. We have been given the grace that we need, the new power, the new strength to conquer every assault of the evil one. Second, he says there in verse 8, first part of verse 8, draw near to God. Now, is not the essence of unfaithfulness not drawing near to God? Unfaithfulness, if God is over here, unfaithfulness is me going over here. It, 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 it's a, it, the, the illustration of that is when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and what Nineveh does, he gets on a, on a boat heading in the opposite direction. Well, that's called unfaithfulness. And, and, and you and I may not get on a boat per se, but you, when you and I move in a direction away from the Lord, and we are always, there's not a moment in our day we are always either moving toward the Lord in faith and dependence and repentance or we're moving away from the Lord in, in, in independence and in disobedience and in idolatry. In other words, we're, 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 we're never just in limbo. We're always moving. We're always active. We're always responding in every moment of every day. And, and what he is saying here is in contradistinction to our previous movement of being away from the Lord, which got us in that characterization of, of being spiritual adulterers. He's saying, now, go back over this way. Move toward the Lord. We can't do that on our own. But what we're contending is that in Christ, we're not on our own. In Christ, we've been given new desires and new inclinations. Praise God if, if there's an inclination in your heart that says, yes, I want to draw closer to God. Who put that there? 
It's the grace of God that put that there in our hearts. We would never on our own come up with such a category of moving toward God. And, and so this command that we're to be dead serious and, and, and sober to practice, draw near to God, it's doable because of the grace of God. Cleanse your hands, he says in the second part of verse 8. And he couples that with, and purify your hearts. Which I think... What he's trying to suggest by coupling those two things together is that you and I um, have con two constituent parts. There's a material part and there's an immaterial part. You, you and I can use our hands or our eyes or our ears or our feet or our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness or we can use our hands and our eyes and our ears and our feet and our bodies as instruments of righteousness. So when he's saying cleanse your hands, he's saying take your body and use it for the Lord. He says purify your hearts. He's talking about the immaterial part of us, the, our souls. He's, he's, and so he's saying body and soul. The Lord and use your body and soul in service for the king. We can do that by the grace of God. We, because by the grace of God, we've been given not only new power and new strength and new desires and new inclinations, but we've been given a new orientation and a new direction. Unrighteousness is no longer our master. Oh, it still look around, lurks around and offers suggestions to us, but it doesn't control us. We, we've been given a new orientation and a new direction. Then he says in verse 9, be wretched. Now, that's the only thing I can do pretty much on my own. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here in, that, in this passage. But be wretched and mourn and weep. Uh, weep and let, let your laughter be turned to mourning. What is he talking about? Let your joy be turned to gloom. Now, some of you got that one down pretty good, too. But, um, but in this context, what is he talking about? Because on the one hand, elsewhere in the scriptures, we're to rejoice always. Does it turn out that God is a killjoy after all? God's like, hey, some of you, some of you are, are, are happy this morning, and uh, I've sent Joe to put an end to that. <laughs> well, sometimes I think we'll operate in, in, in both spheres. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians talked about being sorrowful yet rejoicing. So, so, so sometimes we're simultaneously uh, experiencing uh, lots of things. We are experiencing modes and realms of, of joy and happiness, and, and, and yet at the same time we're experiencing aspects and dimensions of sorrow and weeping and mourning. And that doesn't make us bipolar. I mean, that's just a normal part of existence that we could experience a whole range of things at the same time here in this context. So, so what is the mourning and the weeping and the gloom uh, that he is calling for? Well, what's the context? He, he has just said 
that we were unfaithfulness, that we were adulterous, that we were fostering a budding friendship with the world. And it is those sort of things. And insofar as those sort of things are indicative or true of us, then we shouldn't be happy about that. If we are spiritually unfaithful to the Lord, then where is the grieving over that? If we are lackadaisical in our relationship with Jesus, then uh, where's the happiness in that? You see, he's locating these these affections and emotions of mourning and weeping and gloom into the context of he's just addressed us as unfaithful. We should not derive any joy from a state of unfaithfulness. And if you and I have previously up to this moment, I didn't know that, now i got to quit. If you and I previously up to this moment have been deriving happiness and joy of unfaithfulness, then, then, then James is saying, then wake up. That joy should be gloom. That happiness should be mourning and weeping. That's such, a, that's such a challenge because you and I are tempted by the enemy to move away from the Lord because he has offered us pleasures and joys and happiness apart from God. And we could find ourselves in some sort of delusional state of happiness in that context. James is saying, don't. Over that state. Well, I'll try to bring this to a close. You and I are to resist the devil, but we cannot resist the devil on our own. But the grace of God enables us to resist the devil. You and I will not draw close to God by ourselves. But the grace of God will prompt us to draw close to God. You and I won't cleanse our hands and purify our hearts in our own strength, but the grace of God gives us everything we need to do that. You and I would not have the sense to mourn and weep over our unfaithfulness, but God's grace will break us. And show us the emptiness of that. And yet for that grace to be fully operative in our lives. You and I need to submit ourselves to God. And to humble ourselves before the Lord. Now the interesting selection of those terms is it gets to the heart of 
our pursuits. A heart that says, no, I'm not going to turn to God is not a humble heart. But also a heart that says, but it won't do any good to turn to God. I still won't be able to resist the devil. I still won't be able to draw near to God. I still won't be able to cleanse my hands and purify my hearts. I still won't be able to mourn over my... That too is a heart that is self-exalting, that says it won't do any good when, the, when God's word says it will do good. You will have the grace that you need to do these things if you would only humble yourself before me. It takes humility to realize I need help. I can't resist the devil. I've not ever been able to up to this point. I won't draw near to God. Never given much thought of it on my own. I won't cleanse my hands and purify my heart uh, because I, don't, I just don't really think that that's what I ought to spend my life doing. I'm not going to mourn and weep over my sin uh, because quite honestly, it really does something for me. See, all of that is rooted and predicated upon the notion of I won't admit my real state. I won't admit my real need. These strategies that the apostle James gives to us, that James gives to us, these are are strategies that you and I are required to engage in, and yet there's narrow one of these strategies that are self-empowered. It is the grace of God that empowers us to engage these strategies. Augustine said this, Lord, command what you will. And give what you command. God is right in everything he tells us to do. But there's never a thing that God tells us to do that we can do on our own. We are utterly dependent upon God to obey God. And God is absolutely faithful to supply us with everything we need to obey him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word teaches us. And Father, as we gather and bring these things to a close this morning, we, we acknowledge that we still have elements of self-exaltation in our hearts, and yet you call us to humble ourselves before you. So help us, even, even in this song of closure, that you would, by your grace, give us hearts that love the thought that you are exalted, and thus we are not. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's stand.